This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill. Read by Mary Reagan. Chapter 4 Psychology and the Life of the Spirit. 2. Contemplation and Suggestion. In the last chapter we considered what the modern analysis of mind had to tell us about the nature of the spiritual life, the meaning of sin and of salvation. We now go on to another aspect of this subject, namely, the current conception of the unconscious mind as a dominant factor of our psychic life, and of the extent and the conditions in which its resources can be tapped, and its powers made amenable to the direction of the conscious mind. Two principal points must here be studied. The first is the mechanism of that which is called autistic thinking, and its relation to religious experience. The second, the laws of suggestion and their bearing upon the spiritual life. Especially must we consider from this point of view the problems which are resumed under the headings of prayer, contemplation, and grace. We shall find ourselves compelled to examine the nature of meditation and recollection, as spiritual persons have always practiced them, and to give, if we can, a psychological account of many of their classic conceptions and activities. We shall therefore be much concerned with those experiences which are often called mystical, but which I prefer to call in general contemplative and intuitive, because they extend, as we shall find, without a break from the simplest type of mental prayer, to the most general apprehensions of the spirit, to the most fully developed examples of religious monoideism, to place all those intuitions and perceptions of which God or his kingdom are the objects in a class apart from all other intuitions and perceptions, and call them mystical, is really to beg the question from the start. The psychic mechanisms involved in them are seen in action and many other types of mental activity, and will not, in my opinion, be understood until they are removed from the category of the supernatural, and studied as the movements of the one spirit of life, here directed towards a transcendent objective. And further, we must ever keep in mind, since we are now dealing with specific spiritual experiences, deeply exploring the contemplative soul, that though psychology can criticize these experiences, and help us to separate the wheat from the chaff, can tell us, too, a good deal about the machinery by which we lay hold of them, and the best way to use it. It cannot explain the experiences, pronounce upon their object, or reduce that object to its own terms. We may, some day, have a valid psychology of religion, though we are far from it yet, but when we do, it will only be true within its own system of reference. It will deal with the fact of the spiritual life from one side only, and as a discussion of the senses and their experience explains nothing about the universe by which these senses are impressed, so all discussion of spiritual faculty and experience remains within the human radius, and neither invalidates nor accounts for the spiritual world. When the psychologist has finished telling us all that he knows about the rules which govern our mental life and how to run it best, he is still left face to face with the mystery of that life, and of that human power of surrender to spiritual reality which is the very essence of religion. 
Humility remains, therefore, not only the most becoming, but also the most scientific attitude for investigators in this field. We must then remember the inevitably symbolic nature of the language which we are compelled to use in our attempts to describe these experiences, and resist all temptation to confuse the handy series of labels with which psychology has furnished us, with the psychic unity to which they will be attached. Perhaps the most fruitful of all our recent discoveries in the mental region will turn out to be that which is gradually revealing to us the extent and character of the unconscious mind, and the possibility of tapping its resources, bending its plastic shape to our own mold. It seems as though the laws of its being are at last beginning to be understood, giving a new content to the ancient command, Know Thyself. We are learning that psychotherapy, which made such immense strides during the war, is merely one of the directions in which this knowledge may be used, and this control exercised by us. That regnancy of spirit over matter towards which all idealists must look, is by way of coming at least to a partial fulfillment in this control of the conscious over the unconscious, and thus over the bodily life. Such control is indeed an aspect of our human freedom, of the creative power which has been put into our hands. In all this religion must be interested, because once more it is the business of religion to regenerate the whole man and win him for reality. If we could get rid of the idea that the unconscious is a separate and, in some sort, hostile or animal entity set over against the conscious mind, and realize that it is simply our whole personality, with the exception of the scrap that happens at any moment to be in consciousness, then, perhaps, we should more easily grasp the importance of exploring and mobilizing its powers. As it is, most of us behave like the owners of a well-furnished room, who ignore every aspect of it except the window looking out upon the street. This we keep polished, and drape with the best curtains that we can afford. But the room upon which we sedulously turn our backs contains all that we have inherited, all that we have accumulated, many tools which are rusting for want of use, machinery, too, which left to itself may function satisfactorily, or may get out of order and work to results that we neither desire nor dream. The room is twilight. Only by the window is a little patch of light. Beyond this there is a fringe of vague, fluctuating, sometimes prismatic radiance, an intermediate region, where the images and things which most interest us have their place just within range, or the fringe of the field of consciousness. In the darkest corners the machinery that we do not understand, those possessions of which we are least proud, and those pictures we hate to look at, are hidden away. This little parable represents, more or less, what psychology means by the conscious, foreconscious, and unconscious regions of the psyche. It must not be pressed or too literally interpreted, but it helps us to remember the graded character of our consciousness, its fluctuating level, and the fact that, as well as the outward-looking mind, which alone we usually recognize, there is also the psychic matrix from which it has been developed, the inward-looking mind, caring for a variety of interests of which we hardly, as we say, think at all. We know as yet little about this mysterious psychic whole. 
the inner nature of which is only very incompletely given to us in the fluctuating experiences of consciousness. But we do know that it, too, receives at least a measure of the light and the messages coming in by the window of our wits, that it is the home of memory, instinct, and habit, the source of conduct, and that its control and modification form the major part of the training of character. Further, it is sensitive, plastic, accessible to impressions, and unforgetting. Consider now that half-lit region which is called the foreconscious mind, for this is of special interest to the spiritual life. It is, in psychological language, the region of autistic as contrasted with realistic thought. 85. That is to say, it is the agent of reverie and meditation. It is at work in all our brooding states, from daydream to artistic creation. Such autistic thought is dominated not by logic or will, but by feeling. It achieves its results by intuition, and has its reasons which the surface mind knows not of. Here in this fringe region, which alone seems fully able to experience adoration and wonder, or apprehend the values we call holiness, beauty, or love, is the source of that intuition of the heart to which the mystic owes the love which is knowledge and the knowledge which is love. Here is the true home of inspiration and invention. Here, by a process which is seldom fully conscious save in its final stages, the poet's creations are prepared, and thence presented in the form of inspiration to the reason, which, if he be a great artist, criticizes them, before they are given as poems to the world. Indeed, in all man's apprehensions of the transcendental, these two states of the psyche must cooperate if he is to realize his full powers, and it is significant that to this foreconscious region religion, in its own special language, has always invited him to retreat, if he would know his own soul, and thus commune with his God. Over and over again it assures him under various metaphors that he must turn within, withdraw from the window, meet the inner guest, and such a withdrawal is the condition of all contemplation. Consider the opening of Jakob Burma's great dialogue on the supersensual life. The scholar said to his master, How may I come to the supersensual life, that I may see God and hear him speak? His master said, when thou canst throw thyself for a moment into that where no creature dwelleth, then thou hearest what God speaketh. The scholar said, Is that near at hand or far off? The master said, It is in thee, if thou canst for a while cease from all thinking and willing, thou shalt hear the unspeakable words of God. The scholar said, How can I hear when I stand still from thinking and willing? The master said, When thou standest still from the thinking and willing of self, then the eternal hearing, seeing, and speaking will be revealed in thee. 86. In this passage we have a definite invitation to retreat from volitional to effective thought, from the window to the quiet place where no creature dwelleth, and in Patmore's phrase, the night of thought becomes the light of perception. 87. 
This fringe region, or foreconscious, is in fact the organ of contemplation, as the realistic outward-looking mind is the organ of action. Most men go through life without conceiving, far less employing, the rich possibilities which are implicit in it. Yet here, among the many untapped resources of the self, lie our powers of response to our spiritual environment, powers which are kept by the tyrannical interests of everyday life below the threshold of full consciousness, and never given a chance to emerge. Here take place those searching experiences of the inner life, which seem moonshine or morbidity to those who have not known them. The many people who complain that they have no such personal religious experience, that the spiritual world is shut to them, are usually found to have expected this experience to be given to them without any deliberate and sustained effort on their own part. They have lived from childhood to maturity at the little window of consciousness and have never given themselves the opportunity of setting up correspondences with any other world than that of sense. Yet all normal men and women possess, at least in a rudimentary form, some intuition of the transcendental, shown in their power of experiencing beauty or love. In some it is dominant, emerging easily and without help. In others it is latent and must be developed in the right way. In others, again, it may exist in virtual conflict with a strongly realistic outlook, gathering way until it claims its rights at last in a psychic storm. Its emergence, however achieved, is a part, and for our true life, by far the most important part, of that outcropping and overflowing into consciousness of the marginal faculties, which is now being recognized as essential to all artistic and creative activities, and as playing, too, a large part in the regulation of mental and bodily health. All the great religions have implicitly understood, though without analysis, the vast importance of these spiritual intuitions and faculties lying below the surface of the everyday mind, and have perfected machinery tending to secure their release and their training. This is of two kinds. First, religious ceremonial, addressing itself to corporate feeling. Next, the discipline of meditation and prayer, which educates the individual to the same ends, gradually developing the powers of the foreconscious region, steadying them, and bringing them under the control of the purified will. Without some such education, widely as its details may vary, there can be no real living of the spiritual life. A going out into the life of sense prevented the exercise of earnest realization. 88. Psychologists sometimes divide men into the two extreme classes of extroverts and introverts. The extrovert is the typical active, always leaning out of the window and setting up contacts with the outside world. His thinking is mainly realistic. That is to say, it deals with the data of sense. The introvert is the typical contemplative, predominantly interested in the inner world. His thinking is mainly autistic, dealing with the results of intuition and feeling, working these up into new structures, and extorting from them new experiences. 
He is at home in the foreconscious, has its particular powers under control, and, instinctively obedient to the mystic command to sink into the ground of the soul, he leans towards those deep wells of his own being which plunge into the unconscious foundations of life. By this avoidance of total concentration on the sense-world, though material obtained from it must as a matter of fact enter into all, even his most spiritual creations, he seems able to attend to the messages which intuition picks up from other levels of being. It is significant that nearly all spiritual writers use this very term of introversion, which psychology has now adopted as the most accurate that it can find, in a favorable, indeed laudatory, sense. By it they intend to describe the healthy expansion of the inner life, the development of the soul's power of attention to the spiritual, which is characteristic of those real men and women of prayer whom Roycebrook describes as gazing inward with an eye uplifted and open to the eternal truth, inwardly abiding in simplicity and stillness and in utter peace. 89. It is certain that no one who wholly lacks this power of retreat from the surface and has failed thus to mobilize his foreconscious energies can live a spiritual life. This is why silence and meditation play so large a part in all sane religious discipline. But the ideal state, a state answering to that rhythm of work and prayer, which should be the norm of a mature spirituality, is one in which we have achieved that mental flexibility and control which puts us in full possession of our autistic and our realistic powers, balancing and unifying the inner and the outer world. This being so, it is worth while to consider in more detail the character of foreconscious thought. Foreconscious thinking, as it commonly occurs in us, with its unchecked illogical stream of images and ideas, moving towards no assigned end, combined in no ordered chain, is merely what we usually call daydream. But where a definite wish or purpose, an end, dominates this reverie and links up its images and ideas into a cycle, we get in combination all the valuable properties, both of affective and of directed thinking. Although the reverie or contemplation place in the fringe region of our mental life, and in apparent freedom from the control of the conscious reason, the object of recollection and meditation, which are the first stages of mental prayer, is to set going such a series, and to direct it towards an assigned end. And this first inward-turning act and self-orientation are voluntary, though the activities which they set up are not. You must know, my daughters, says St. Teresa, that this is no supernatural act, but depends on our will, and that therefore we can do it, with that ordinary assistance of God, which we need for all our acts, and even for our good thoughts. 90. Consider for a moment what happens in prayer. I pass over the simple recitation of verbal prayers, which will be better dealt with when we come to consider the institutional framework of the spiritual life. We are now concerned with mental prayer or horizon, the simplest of those degrees of contemplation which may pass gradually into mystical experience, and are at least in some form a necessity of any real and actualized spiritual life. Such prayer is well defined by the mystics as a devout intent directed to God. 91. What happens in it? 
all writers on the science of prayer observe that the first necessity is recollection which in a rough and ready way we may render as concentration or perhaps in the special language of psychology as contention the mind is called in from external interests and distractions one by one the avenues of sense are closed till the hunt of the world is hardly perceived by it i need not labor this description for it is a state of which we must all have experience, but those who wish to see it described with the precision of genius need only turn to St. Teresa's The Way of Perfection. Having achieved this, we pass gradually into the condition of deep withdrawal, variously called simplicity or quiet, a state in which the attention is quietly and without effort directed to God, and the whole self, as it were, held in His presence. This presence is given dimly or clearly in intuition the actual prayer used will probably consist again to use technical language of effective acts and aspirations short phrases repeated and held perhaps expressing penitence humility adoration or love and for the praying self charged with profound significance if we would intentively pray for getting of good says the cloud of unknowing let us cry either with word, or with thought, or with desire, not else, nor on more words than but this word God. Study thou not for no words, for so shouldst thou never come to thy purpose, nor to this work, for it is never got by study, but all only by grace. 92. Now the question naturally arises, how does this recollected state, this illogical brooding on a spiritual theme, exceed in religious value the orderly saying of one's prayers? And the answer psychology suggests is that more of us, not less, is engaged in such a spiritual act that not only the conscious attention, but the foreconscious region too, is then thrown open to the highest sources of life. We are at last learning to recognize the existence of delicate mental processes which entirely escape the crude methods of speech. Reverie, as a genuine thought process, is beginning to be studied with the attention it deserves, and new understanding of prayer must result. By its means, powers of perception and response ordinarily latent are roused to action, and thus the whole life is enriched. That faculty in us which corresponds not with the busy life of succession, but with the eternal sources of power, gets its chance. Though the soul, says von Hugel, cannot abidingly abstract itself from its fellows, it can and ought frequently to recollect itself in a simple sense of God's presence. Such moments of direct preoccupation with God alone bring a deep refreshment, and simplification to the soul. 93. True silence, says William Penn, of this quiet surrender to reality is rest to the mind and is to the spirit what sleep is to the body, nourishment and refreshment. 94. Psychology endorses the constant statements of all religions of the spirit that no one need hope to live a spiritual life who cannot find a little time each day for this retreat from the window, this quiet and loving waiting upon the unseen with the forces of the soul 
as Roy's book puts it, gathered into unity of the spirit. 95. Under these conditions, and these only, the intuitive, creative, artistic powers are captured and dedicated to the highest ends, and in these powers, rather than the rational, our best chance of apprehending eternal values abides. Taste and see that the Lord is sweet. Be still, be still, and know that I am God. Since, then, the foreconscious mind and its activities are of such paramount interest to the spiritual life, we may, before we go on, glance at one or two of its characteristics. And first we notice that the fact that the foreconscious is, so to speak, in charge in the mental and contemplative type of prayer explains why it is that even the most devout persons are so constantly tormented by distractions whilst engaged in it. Very often they are utterly unable to keep their attention fixed. And the reason of this is that conscious attention and thought are not the faculties primarily involved. What is involved is reverie colored by feeling, and this tends to depart from its assigned end and drift into mere daydream, if the emotional tension slackens or some intruding image starts a new train of associations. The religious mind is distressed by this constant failure to look steadily at that which it alone wants to see, but the failure abides in the fact that the machinery used is affective, and obedient to the rise and fall of feeling, rather than the control of the will. By love shall he be gotten and holden, by thought never. Next, consider for a moment the way in which the foreconscious does and must present its apprehensions to consciousness. Its cognitions of the spiritual are in the nature of pure immediacy, of uncriticized contacts, and the best and greatest of them seem to elude altogether that machinery of speech and image which has been developed through the life of sense. The well-known language of spiritual writers about the divine darkness, or ignorance, is an acknowledgment of this. God is known darkly. Our experience of eternity is that of which nothing can be said. It is beyond feeling and beyond knowledge, a certitude known in the ground of the soul, and so forth. It is indeed true that the spiritual world is for the human mind a transcendent world, does differ utterly in kind from the best that the world of succession is able to give us, as we know once for all when we establish a contact with it, however fleeting. But constantly the foreconscious, which, as we shall do well to remember, is the artistic region of the mind, the home of the poem, the creative fantasy, works up its transcendent intuitions in symbolic form. For this purpose it sometimes uses the machinery of speech, sometimes that of image. As our ordinary reveries constantly proceed by way of an interior conversation or narrative, so the content of spiritual contemplation is often expressed in dialogue, in which memory and belief are fused with the fruit of perception. The dialogue of St. Catherine of Siena, the life of Suso, and the imitation of Christ all provide beautiful examples of this, but indeed illustrations of it might be found in every school and period of religious literature. Such inward dialogue, one of the commonest spontaneous forms of autistic thought, 
is perpetually resorted to by devout minds to actualize their consciousness of direct communion with God. I need not point out how easily and naturally it expresses for them that sense of a friend and companion, an indwelling power and support, which is perhaps their characteristic experience. Blessed is that soul, says a compass, that heareth the Lord speaking in him, and taketh from his mouth the word of consolation. Blessed be those ears that receive of God's whisper, and take no heed of the whisper of this world. 96. Though St. John of the Cross has reminded us with blunt candor that such persons are, for the most part, only talking to themselves, we need not deny the value of such a talking as a means of expressing the deeply known and intimate presence of spirit. Moreover, the thoughts and words in which the contemplative expresses his sense of love and dedication reverberate, as it were, in the depths of the instinctive mind, now in this quietude thrown open to these influences, and the instinctive mind, as we have already seen, is the home of character and habit formation. Where there is a tendency to think in images rather than in words, the experiences of the spirit may be actualized in the form of vision rather than of dialogue, and here again memory and feeling will provide the material. Here we stand at the sources of religious art, which, when it is genuine, is a symbolic picture of the experiences of faith, and in those minds attuned to it may evoke again the memory or very presence of those experiences. But many minds are, as it were, their own religious artists, and build up for themselves psychic structures answering to their intuitive apprehensions. So vivid may these structures sometimes be for them that, to revert again to our original simile, the self turns from the window and the realistic world without, and becomes for the time wholly concentrated on the symbolic drama or picture within the room, which abolishes all awareness of the everyday world. When this happens in a small way, we have what might be called a religious daydream of more or less beauty and intensity, such as most devout people who tend to visualization have probably known. When the break with the external world is complete, we get those ecstatic visions in which mystics of a certain type actualize their spiritual intuitions. The Bible is full of examples of this. Good historic instances are the visions of Mechtilde of Magdeburg or Angela of Foligno. The first contain all the elements of drama. The last cover a wide symbolic and emotional field. Those who have read Canon Streeter's accounts of the visions of the Sadhu Sundar Singh will recognize them as being of this type. 97. I do not wish to go further than this into the abnormal and extreme types of religious autism, trance, ecstasy, and so forth. Our concern is with the norm of the spiritual life, as it exists today, and as all may live it. But it is necessary to realize that image and vision do within limits represent a perfectly genuine way of doing things, which is inevitable for deeply spiritual selves of a certain type, and that it is neither good psychology nor good Christianity, lightly to dismiss as superstition or hysteria the pictured world of symbol in which our neighbor may live and save his soul. The symbolic world of traditional piety, with its angels and demons, its friendly saints, its spatial heaven, may conserve and communicate spiritual values far better 
than the more sophisticated universe of religious philosophy. We may be sure that both are more characteristic of the image-making and structure-building tendencies of the mind than they are of the ultimate and for us unknowable reality of things. Their value, or the value of any work of art which the foreconscious has contrived, abides wholly in the content, the quality of the material thus worked up. The rich nature, the purified love, capable of the highest correspondences, will express even in the most primitive duologue or vision the results of a veritable touching and tasting of eternal life. Its psychic structures, however logic may seek to discredit them, will convey spiritual fact, have the quality which the mystics mean when they speak of illumination. The emotional pietist will merely ramble among the religious symbols and phrases with which the devout memory is stored. It is true that the voice or the picture, surging up as it does into the field of consciousness, seems to both classes to have the character of a revelation. The pictures unroll themselves automatically and with amazing authority and clearness. The conversation is with another than ourselves, or in more generalized experiences, such as the sense of the divine presence. The contact is with another order of life. But the crucial question which religion asks must be, does fresh life flow in from those visions and contacts, that intercourse? Is transcendental feeling involved in them? What fruits dost thou bring back from this thy vision? asks Jacopona de Todi. 98. And this remains the only real test by which to separate daydreams from the vitalizing act of contemplation. In the first we are abandoned to a delightful and perhaps, as it seems, holy or edifying vagrancy of thought. In the second, by a deliberate choice and act of will, foreconscious thinking is set going and directed towards an assigned end, the apprehending and actualizing of our deepest intuition of God. In it, a great region of the mind, usually ignored by us and left to chance, yet source of many choices and deeds, and capable of much purifying pain, is put to its true work, and it is work which must be humbly, regularly, and faithfully performed. It is to this region that poetry, art, and music, and even, if I dare say so, philosophy, make their fundamental appeal. No life is whole and harmonized in which it has not taken its right place. End of chapter 4 Part A. Footnotes. 85. On all this, C.F. J. Varendonk, The Psychology of Daydreams. 86. Jacoboma, The Way to Christ, Part 4. 87. Patmore, The Rod, The Root, and The Flower, Aurea Dicta, 13. 88. Roycebrook, The Book of the Twelve Begins. 89. The Book of the Twelve Begins. 90. The Way of Perfection. 91. The Cloud of Unknowing. 92. Ibid. 93. Eternal Life, page 396. 94. Pen, No Cross, No Crown. 95. The Book of the Twelve Begins. 96. De Emmet Christi, Book 3. 97. Streeter and Apasami, 
The Sadhu, A Study in Mysticism and Practical Religion, Part 5. 98. Jacopona de Todi, Lauda 79. End of Chapter 4, Part A.